3 and in Joshua chapter 4. Uh, as I've stated many times, when Christ Community Church started 10 years ago, I had no idea what I was doing. I had been on the Young Life staff for the 15 years prior to that, 13 of those here in Wilmington. And there were some things I was good at. I was good at 15 years ago sitting down at a group of, uh, in a cafeteria at New Hanover High School with a group of people all aged 14 to 18. And I was good at sitting there and not knowing any of them and after a few weeks becoming friends. That's what I was good at. I was good at going to UNCW and making college kids think I was hip hop and all that and uh, still pretty good at that um, and helping them become young life leaders. I was good at that. I was good at standing in living rooms or dens or kitchens or garages or a number of other places with 30 to 130 kids sitting on the floor and telling them about Jesus. I was good at that. I was good at crushing up Oreo tops or bottoms, not using the middle, but crushing those up, putting that into an empty skull can and then eating that and making kids believe I could eat skull out of a can. I was really Really good at that. I was good at going to ball games on Friday nights, basketball or football. I was good at standing in the student section, that, that sacred square that you can only enter if you're a high school student, where innocence and immaturity and insecurity collide with a wide variety of emotions, motives, and spiritual forces. I was good at standing there and trying to represent Jesus. Those were the things I was good at 15 or 10 years ago. I had never delivered a sermon. I had never been on a church staff. I would never been on a board of any kind with a church. But when Christ Community Church was starting in my own immaturity, I thought, hey, how hard can it be? I mean, you open up your Bible, you read from the Bible, you tell people about Jesus, and then you learn, try to walk in his ways. And then when you come across other people who don't know Jesus, when the time is right, you try to introduce them to Jesus. <laughs> oh, how naive. <laughs> Turns out churches aren't that different than the sacred square of the student section at a football game. Congregations, this sacred square is where innocence, immaturity, and insecurity, especially my own, collide with a wide variety of motives, emotions, and spiritual forces. Soon after our first Founders Day, which was in June of 2002, I began, because I knew nothing about how to start a church, plant a church, began to read and call other people. And I remember distinctively calling this veteran church planter, and just trying to mine any kind of nugget that he could give to me. And he was really helpful in a number of things, but, but I'll never forget what he said. He said, Paul, it, it takes an unusual person who wants to be a part of a church plant. 
<laughs> so I thought about myself first and then the people who were starting with me. And he says, for many of the people who are founders, your church will not turn out to be the church they were hoping for. And at least 50 percent of those who helped found the church will not last more than a few years. And I thought, I mean, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but he's wrong. So when I look back and look at the first Founders Day picture that we have in our office, there were there were 34 members. Some of those were single. Some of those were couples. Some of those were families. But in terms of units, there were 34. And since that time, two of those have moved out of town. Twenty have moved to another church in town and 12 have stayed here. So that's 35%. So my, my veteran church planner friend was right. He was right about most of the things he said, and I was wrong about most of my um, guesses. But 10 years ago, all 34 of those people who helped found the church heard this sermon, heard these verses from Joshua. And every... Uh, Founders Day, I like to revisit these verses and, and remind ourselves, as they do so often in the Old Testament, of, of what brought you here, how you got here, and what's continuing to focus your attention as you move forward. And there were three foundational points for Joshua as he's going from the wilderness. This, there's this transition between Moses and Joshua, and now Joshua is the one who's taking them across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land, and he's going to be the not just a general, but he's going to be a founder of a nation. So the title of the sermon is a, The Founding of a Nation, and then the founding of the church. And what are some principles that we can gain from Joshua and how he founded this nation of Israel and, and what we can take in terms of founding a church? So Joshua chapter 1, verse 1 says this, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, rise, go over this Jordan and you and all this people into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn to, from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, the, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out to, from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, and he and all the people of Israel 
and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God, being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may now know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then concluding in chapter 4, verse 19. Chapter 4, verse 19. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. As the Lord your God did to the, to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these words are written for us. They had a, an application, a historical application to the people that were passing over from the wilderness into the promised land. And we we can see a greater application as we cross over from sin and death into life. Joshua was a representative. Now we know the true Joshua, Jesus, who leads his people out of darkness into the light. We will all stand at the Jordan one day. We pray that you are our leader. In Jesus' name, amen. I have two things in my toolbox at home. A hammer and a cell phone. And so when Nancy asked me to fix something around the house, I say, honey, can it be fixed by a hammer? And if she says, yes, I am the man to, to be, uh, you know, the Mr. Fix-It. But if it requires anything other than a hammer, then I have a cell phone because I know I should call someone before I get involved in any kind of home improvement project. But occasionally, I uh, understand, even though I understand my disability, I go out and decide I want to do something anyway. And I pick off simple projects. I say, well, how hard can this be? is a telltale sign. And I've said this, given this illustration for the last 10 years, when we moved into our house, we were kind of on a cul-de-sac. And so to one side, you couldn't really see the neighbor and we had some woods. But on this side, you could just see right into the backyard. So I thought, I'm not going to put up a a fence with a corner. I'm not going to do anything with gate. I'm just going to put up a fence wall. That's all there was to it. So I went up to Lowe's and it was so perfect because they already had the fence panels made. So I'm like, this is perfect. You just have to put in the posts, then you just basically lean the panels up, tack it up, you've got an instant fence. So I'm sitting there at Lowe's thinking, how hard can this be? And so I get nine posts and eight panels, and I, I, I have a plumb line like I know what I'm doing, and I, I put in my nine posts, 
and I put the concrete around them, and then I get my panel the next day, and I, I put up my first panel, and I'm trying to hold this thing and sort of nail it up, and I, and I get it up, and I step back, and it looks good, and then I do a measurement, and I realize on the, the, the far end, I'm just a quarter inch off. And I was like, yeah, you know how guys do, you know, when they get something done and yeah, I did that. I'm thinking a quarter of an inch, nobody's even going to notice. This is perfect. And so I get my next panel with great enthusiasm. And of course, it's just a little off on this end, but that's okay. I tack it up. And then what do I find out on this end? Well, now it's not just a quarter of an inch off. It's four inches off. So it's kind of moving up like this, and I realize if I put my next panel, you know, I'm going to be a foot off the ground. So we're defeating the purpose of the fence here. And I did do a little calculation that on my eighth panel, I'd be 30 feet up in the air. So what did I have to do? I had to go back and make sure this first panel was dead on. Because even if I got a quarter of an inch off, even if no one could see it, the next the next panel, the next generation would start a quarter of an inch off. And if they started a quarter of an inch off, who who knows how far off you can get in the next generation? And several generations later, you could be way off from what you actually intended to build. And so it serves as a good reminder for us to to remember how how not to get uh, a quarter of an inch off. It's so easy to slip off and to say, well, that's no big deal. And so here, Joshua, he's founding this nation. He wants to make sure he he puts it on just right so that the next generation, you notice when they when the. There, there will be children who come by this place in the River Jordan who don't know what has happened, and you'll have to tell them what has happened. And these were the three foundational points that I got out of these texts this morning. First is God's chosen leadership. Second is God's word. And finally, third is courage. These were the three foundational points. First, God's chosen leadership. God isn't limited in the way he chooses to make himself known. He can decide to do it in any manner of ways. But we see certain biblical patterns develop. And one of those is leadership. It begins even in Genesis. Adam in the garden was given leadership in the garden. And and even after the fall, we see that that leadership Because after the fall, Adam and Eve are hiding and God comes into the garden. And what's the first thing he says? Adam. Where are you? Was he just not concerned about Eve? If I were Adam, hey, not me, her, look for her. Of course, that's what he tried to do. But you see, there's a leadership structure. And I'm coming to the leader, and one of the the greatest tragedies in the garden wasn't just merely the eating of the apple. It was the failure of leadership. And God's going to address the leader. Leader, you were here. You were the person who was supposed to stand in between the serpent and your wife. Where where did you go? I, I need to address you as the leader. After the fall, God continues to use leaders as his primary method in making himself known. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Peter, Paul, 
Augustine, Calvin, John Wesley. The, the church is full of names of men and women who have been used mightily by God to advance his kingdom. Ravi Zacharias makes this observation about godly leadership He said, when he says this. There are no bona fide mass movements. It just looks that way. At the center of the column is a man or a woman who knows their God and where their God is going. There's no abstract movement that is moving ahead. There are individuals who are moving ahead, and therefore the cause of Christ is going forward. At the center of the column is a man or woman who knows their God and where their God is going. And I want to look at two characteristics of this godly leadership. But but before I do, I just want to remind you why that's important for you as a, a member of Christ's community church. And in some sense, this is the center of the column for any church. And so the 10 years that have gone by, man, in some ways, it seems like they just you snap your fingers. And one day this will be the last time I give a sermon from this pulpit. And somebody else will take their place at the center of the column. And it'll be your responsibility as members of the of the church to say, we need someone at the center of this column who's going to continue to to drive the same nail. As, as Charles Spurgeon said to his congregation, I, I don't know why you keep coming back. I'm just hammering the same nail every week. And so it'll be up to you, uh, elders, deacons, members, leaders, to, to find somebody at the center of this column who will, week after week, just hammer the same nail over and over again. Two characteristics that we see here. First is the leader's primary focus is on God. Joshua 1.1, the Lord spoke to Joshua. He's giving Joshua the instructions. A leader's primary concern is to listen to God and let the word of God lead. And the leader's relationship to God must become before his relationship to the congregation. The leader can't afford to let the congregation be the leader. The, the, the leader has to fo- be following after God. We, we don't want a leader who is following the mood of the congregation. We don't want a leader who's following the mood of the culture. We don't want a leader who's following his own mood. We want, we want somebody who's fo- knows and following the mood of God, whichever direction that may be, and, and leading what may look like a mass movement, but we're really just following after the direction that God is leading all of us. Um, you, you remember the, the the great story in Mark chapter one where Jesus had healed a lot of people. I've used this this uh, picture so many times or this passage so many times. At night, he's healed a lot of people. Those people go home. They start spreading the word, and the next morning, it, they say the whole town is now at this house looking for Jesus. Well, you might not be surprised by that. 
And Jesus, meanwhile, before it was light, he slips off and he goes off and he's praying. And his disciples wake up and the whole town's at, the, at his house and he's going, Revival! Awesome! Where's Jesus? Let's go get Jesus. And they go find Jesus and they say, Jesus, the whole town, we struck gold. You're awesome. Let's get in the game. And what does Jesus say? It's time to go somewhere else. I mean, imagine if you were a disciple. Isn't this the very reason we're here? It, it appears as if this is the right thing. But see, Jesus can't be driven by the mood of his disciples. He can't be driven by the, the mood of the city. He's been praying. He's gotten a word from the Lord, and he's going to move in that direction, no matter what it may look like in the surrounding times. Godly leadership is never distracted or cannot be distracted, cannot afford to be distracted by novelty or popularity. This was, you know, both terribly embarrassing to read uh, and tragic and then funny. On the other hand, there was a reality show that was proposed. Thankfully, it didn't make the airwaves. But the title of the show is going to be Pulpit Masters. And this was the advertisement. Could you be America's next inspired leader to make a positive difference in millions of people's lives? Are you imbued with the fire and passion of God? Do you understand the power of the spoken word? We're looking for someone who can wow the pants off the audience. (laughs) And you would have three minutes to preach. And try to wow the pants off the audience. Well, here we're not trying to wow your pants off. You please keep your pants on. (laughs) I mean, we're, we're not trying to be entertaining. We're trying to be glorifying to God. And that has to be the highest priority in the character of the leader. Second characteristic we see is that Moses is called a servant. And Joshua are called servants. Peter, Paul, Jude, James, they all refer to themselves as servants. In the New Testament, the word leader is used less than ten times. In the New Testament, the word for servant is used more than a thousand times. And so we have to have a leader who has the characteristics of somebody who is a servant. We know this just even from Jesus' own lips. I have not come to be served, but to serve. There was a division in one of the early churches at Corinth that Paul writes about. And uh, what had happened is the congregation had got excited about different men who had come through the church. As you just might imagine, you'd, you'd, you'd have, hey, we got Peter coming through our church, and we got Paul coming through our church, and we got Apollos coming through our church. I'm like, well, I want to be in that church. But you won't find it surprising that some people like Peter better than Paul. And some people liked Apollos better than Peter and Paul together. And so then they got in their little, you know, coffee groups and they said, well, you know, so-and-so said and so-and-so's. And and it just became, well, who who do you know and who is the best person and who's the author you have read lately? And Paul addresses that question in 1 Corinthians 4, let men regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. 
There's a statue in London of John Wesley who uh, came out of England, came out of the Anglican movement, and he began what now is the Methodist Church, although that was not what his plan was. Wesley was a really um, tireless preacher. He was a small man, five foot two. He preached over 40,000 sermons, we say. At 83, he became angry at his doctor because he wouldn't let him preach more than 14 times a week. At 86, John Wesley wrote this in his journal. Laziness is slowly creeping in. There's an, there's an increasing tendency to stay in bed after 5.30 a.m. in the morning. Then on the statue has this quote. Reader, if you feel constrained to praise the instrument, don't give God the glory. You see, Wesley understood that, that really we're, we're always pointing in one direction. And whoever is at the center of the column is a servant to Christ and bringing people to his feet, not their own. And so no matter how powerful or dynamic a leader the church has, the church is built on Christ, not on a pastor, not on a group of elders, not on a figure in church history, not on a founding member, not on a vision, not on a dream, not on a confession, not on a ministry style, but Jesus. Oh, it's so easy, isn't it? To just add one of those things to Jesus. It's Jesus and him. It's Jesus and this. It's Jesus. It's not. It's just Jesus. Second foundational point is God's word. Uh, as I said, when you're trying to build something that's straight, you, you drop a plumb line down. You might have seen it. it's like a chalk line. And uh, that way, whenever you put something up against the chalk line, you can see whether it's straight because, you know, the chalk line is straight. So when you put something up next to it, and it doesn't look straight, then you need to adjust what you're putting up next to it. And the Bible sometimes is referred to as the canon, and the canon means uh, a straight measuring rod. In other words, when you when you come in, in, to encounter the Bible, when you come to encounter the canon, guess who's crooked? <laughs> you. So so the the Bible is the canon. It's the measuring rod, and when you come up next to it, then you have to make adjustments. You don't try to adjust the Bible around yourself. You have to make the adjustments and the accommodations to the Bible. And and God is giving us and Joshua this uh, a verbal exhortation to follow after word after the word and a and a visual exhortation. First the. The verbal exhortation, Joshua 1, 7 and 8. Be strong and courageous, being careful to do everything written in it. Do not turn from my words. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn even a quarter of an inch. Make sure the word doesn't depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. And so God is telling Joshua, Joshua, the world's going to throw all kinds of distractions and it's going to present all kinds of delights. And in order for you to navigate successfully around those things, you have to always keep your eyes on the word. If you know anything about flying, there there are sort of two ratings you get. You get what's called a visual flight rating and then an instrument flight rating. 
So the visual flight rating is the thing that you at first, in other words, you can all you once you learn how to fly a plane, you can go up as long as you can see. It's not foggy. It's not cloudy because you've learned how to fly just by using visual cues. Also, you use the instruments, but you can just see things on the ground and say, this is where I am in relationship to other things. But then an advanced rating is an instrument rating. And that means it doesn't matter the conditions, how foggy or what you can or can't see, because you're no longer using your visual to make an orientation. You're using the instruments. And they say, although I'm not a pilot, that you can get into a big cloud bank or a fog bank and you could be flying upside down. You wouldn't even know it. And there are many people who have flown to their death. Thinking they were going up, but actually they were going down. And they realized it too late and they crashed. And they say the, the pilot instructor says one of the hardest things for somebody to do is is to get away from from their visual orientation to just looking at the instruments to a, just saying whatever the instruments say are true. No matter how I may feel, how no matter what my mood may be, be what, no matter what my orientation is. And the same thing is for us. The first thing we think is right is whatever we feel. And it may be right, but we're not going on that. We're going on the instrument panel, which is the Word of God. We know that's always right. I'm going to feel different. I'm going to have all kinds of different moods and emotions and all kinds of things, but we can trust the Word of God. And the person who's at the center of this column has to continue to bring that instrument panel into play. In his own life and in to the life of the congregation. So, so we're focused in on the word. In ten years, we've flown into the fog before. I mean, I've flown into that fog. Everything's upside down. I feel this way. I'm, I'm in. I can't. I can no longer see the horizon. And at that point, I have to trust the instrument panel. Many of you in ten years have flown into the fog. Some of you may be in it right now. And you have a certain feeling. You have a certain emotion that we can't take. We just can't. Take those away, and we're not trying to take those away, but in the midst of those feelings and emotions, we're trying to put the instrument panel of God's Word in front of you and say, don't trust your feelings at this point. Let's let's trust the instrument panel of God's Word. The the visual illustration I particularly like in Joshua 3 Joshua is getting the people together. And remember, the, the Levitical priests are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which carries the Word of God. And it's way out front, 2,000 cubits or maybe about three football fields. And there's some extra instructions. Hey, let's not, you don't want to get near that. We want to make sure the Word of God is way out front. So that's one of the reasons that typically we do our scripture reading we do, the way we do it. So that you have a moment just to hear the word and then before anything else is said, you just get to sit and meditate on the word. In other words, it's way out front. 
It's far more valuable than however I may explain it. It's, it stands all by itself. And we don't want to get anybody too close and confuse the Word of God with that person. So we want to keep it way out in front. And then this is what I love is, hey, the, one of the other reasons it needs to be way out front is you have no idea where you're going. You know that's true for you? I mean, you have no idea, do you, what could happen tomorrow? I mean, you think you do. You've got your iPad 3 or whatever, right? And you got your whole life. I mean, on that, you can plan out the next 10,000 years, right? I mean, I've used the calendar. You can't get, I mean, you just keep going on that thing. Like, I'm going to be dead by then. But it's just going to keep on moving. And I've got my life planned out, and I'm going to do this. But you, you know what? You don't know. You don't know. So, so let's keep the word out front, because you don't know what might happen. And we want to make sure we're always following after that word and not following after a situation or a, a mood swing. Finally, we come to our last point. Joshua Chapter 1, you, you get the sense just reading these first nine verses, it's going to be difficult. Joshua is one of the, known as one of the greatest generals ever. One of the greatest leaders of all time. But how many times does God have to say, be strong and courageous? Well, why would you say that? You say it if you think the guy might not be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. You say that to people you think might be afraid. And so God has to come in and and encourage and come in behind. Have I not told you? He says it over and over because God knows it's going to take courage for Joshua to move forward. And I always thought when Joshua was moving forward, what would be the most difficult thing for him is the the people on the other side of the Jordan. And certainly that was true. Remember, when they went over before, 40 years before, they came back and Joshua and Caleb had a good report. But remember what everybody else said? They're giants. And to, to them, we look like grasshoppers. So they scared everybody off and they end up wandering around the desert for 40 years. But you could see that this was going to be there's going to be some battles out here. And and Joshua would have a reason to be afraid of what he's looking at. Yet I I think that's just half of the equation. Joshua could have been nervous about the people he was leading. I mean, he'd already been to the promised land once, and when he came back to give a report, the people he was supposed to lead didn't want to go. So he spent 40 years with Moses wandering in the desert, and he knew because he came down off the mountain with Moses. And what did they find? This great people of God now worshiping a golden calf. Joshua was there. He experienced the complaining of the people. I mean, yeah, we're free, but we don't have what we want to eat. We would rather go back into slavery for onions and cucumbers than be out here. That's what they said. Joshua saw when Miriam, Moses' sister, 
and Aaron, Moses' mouthpiece, decided the two of them should take control and take power. And Moses should be deposed. See, I think Joshua was nervous going forward and looking behind. I think he thought I might might get caught in a crossfire from the front and on the back. And so God is coming in behind Joshua saying, hey, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not ever going to forsake you. As leaders and as people being led, it's always helpful to examine your own character, your own motives, your own fears. And and just say, God, is there anything I'm doing that's a barrier to your plan? It's always easier to look outside or to someone else, but it may be that you're the barrier to what God is trying to do. It takes courage to honestly examine yourself. It takes courage to change. It takes courage to take a stand. We have to have leaders who display godly character, leaders who are faithful to the word, leaders who are people of courage. At the end of the sermon, the first time, after we had finished, this service was over, this guy who I thought might become a founding member came up to me and he said, hey, that sounds good, but we'll see if you keep it. I was like, you know, there are some other churches in town, you know, I'd be happy to point you out to them. And that was Kenny Smith, who sits faithfully in the back for 10 years. I always like to call Kenny out on that one. He didn't know he was going to pay 10 times for that and maybe 10 more. But isn't that true? It's easy to say. Easy say, hard to If keep Jesus at the center, and not not me, not someone else, not a group of people, not a theology, not a practice, none of that. This is the center. This is the this is the center of the column. He is the real Joshua. He is the one who has come to lead people out of darkness and into life. And if we ever take all the other good things that he gives us and put them at the center, then we're going to miss the whole thing. It's a great Sunday to have communion because we're a community. And we're a community of people who are trying to always be reminded we must focus on him as the center of our column. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is... uh, Hammering the same nail. But we're doing it on your behalf because we know that on the night you were betrayed, you came and you said, I I want you to remember, I'm never going to leave you, forsake you. I'm always going to be the one who is there with you. 
I have given my, my body, my blood for you. So every time you get together, would you do this in remembrance of me, that I'm at the center of everything. I am the center of everything. And we must orient our lives around you. So, Lord, as these believers come forward, those who have trusted in you and say, yes, Jesus, you're at the center of my life. I'm, I'm struggling to keep you there and for me to orient my life around you. May you offer encouragement, grace, discipline, exhortation, whatever is needed at this small table you can provide. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.